the text this sermon is based off of is Matthew chapter 27. Jesus before Pilate. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. The crowd chooses Barabbas. Now at the feast... The governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor then said to him, them, which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Jesus is mocked. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes back on him and led him away to crucify him. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, let us not grow faint or be discouraged before justice is established on earth. Amen. Amen. You can't eat your cake and have it too. To gain one thing, you have to sacrifice another. This is a line from the infamous manifesto, Industrial Society and Its Future, by Dr. Theodore Kaczynski, known by his friends and family as Ted. Now, if there was one thing that Ted did not like, it was following the crowd, technology, and the way that technology and the crowd think influences today's society and the people who live in it. So much so that he began a string of mail bombings that lasted the course of 17 years. He bombed people of influence in anti-environmental businesses as well as professors at schools. This was 
because he thought that these people had too much un- or concentrated, unjust power. Therefore, he received the nickname Unabomber, the university and airline bomber. A unifying theme of Ted's life and writings was the idea of self-sufficiency and self-isolation. When Ted's brother read the manifesto, which was published in the New York Times and the Washington Post, he noticed the quote, which I began this sermon with. And so his brother, Ted, he noticed that his brother often would confuse these famous sayings, despite having an IQ of 167. And so he tipped off the FBI And from there, they raided the last place that Ted's brother knew that Ted was living, in a shack, by himself, somewhere in Washington State. He didn't have running water, electricity, or air conditioning. He was isolated and completely self-sufficient to the point of near madness. In trying to break himself off from the crowd, groupthink... He became a monster himself, believing that isolation and self-sufficiency was the answer. Pontius Pilate was one to think that he could eat his cake and have it too. Not quite understanding that you have to sacrifice one thing to gain the other. He believed that he could handle the trial and sentencing of this Jesus of Nazareth with grace and skill. He figured he could show the crowd the exact opposite of Jesus, the criminal Jesus Barabbas, and they would obviously choose the innocent man. They're sensible, right? He would satisfy their bloodlust and spare injustice. He would eat his cake and have it too. But this was not the Father's plan. Jesus Barabbas has an ironic name. Bar Abbas means in Aramaic, son of the father. So his name is literally Jesus, son of the father. Little did the crowd know that they were choosing the wrong Jesus, son of the father. The other Jesus was the son of the father who is in heaven and was now perfectly submitting to his father's will. And Pilate was also part of his plan. We confess in the Creed that Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate. What this means is that Jesus' death did not happen in a made-up, far-off realm of ideas or platitudes. It means that God came down to our miserable world, became like us, and lived in our difficult, unfair world with all of its pain and suffering. It means that he lived under unjust legal systems and social pressures to live certain ways that were unsustainable. Pilate knew that something had to be done about Jesus, that there was no choice from his perspective. Jesus, the so-called king of the Jews, was a threat to Herod, the person whose local authority was under Pilate's Roman-appointed jurisdiction. Little did Pilate know that Jesus' true rival was actually Caesar, the so-called God-man 
who ruled the known world of the Roman Empire. Yet, here was Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, holding a reed, wearing a crown of thorns, and adorned in a robe of scarlet, sucking up his blood. This is not how Herod was reigning. This is not how David or Solomon or especially Caesar was reigning or had reigned. Where was the majesty? Where was the glory? Where were the riches? The thing is that it was actually right here. In the blood-drenched robes, the twisted thorns digging into his flesh, the bruised reed dangling in his right hand, this is how the heavenly king reigns with his kingdom breaking in as we speak, leading to his death on the cross for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served. And his service in this reading is to be the scapegoat who takes on our sins, the sins of the crowd upon himself, to bear them and then to die. He is a suffering servant. His service looks like serving as entertainment to the Gentile Roman soldiers who literally know not what they do when they are kneeling, mocking him with false praise. They are going to kill an innocent man. It therefore becomes all the more important that he go to the cross degraded, unrecognizable as a human being. Because it is easier to kill those who have been stripped of all of their humanity before they're subjected to death. The Sanhedrin, the crowds, the soldiers, Pilate, they do these things in this way because they are a system built on lies, jealous power, and injustice. Therefore, to bring about peace, as they see it, to stop social unrest, Jesus must be condemned and killed. Pilate, the governor appointed by Rome, cannot escape the crowd. He sees that he can do nothing to avoid what the crowd desires, that is to crucify Jesus. A riot is beginning. So Pilate fears a riot worse than he fears the injustice of killing an innocent man. We live in the same world that Jesus died in and died for. We live in a system that is often led by a majority rule that is seeking to eat its cake and have it too. Large groups of people in democratic votes are dissuaded against what is truly best for them. They say things like, we can have the right to life and also allow for the killing of innocents. Afraid of what a virus might do, the whole world descends into chaos as to who is to blame. Is it those wet markets I saw on the news? Is it the government for not closing things down quick enough? The preparedness of its citizens and businesses? Our kids at college are peer, pre peer pressured into dismissing and leaving behind the faith of their parents and their confirmation vows. It is so obvious why Jesus 
must be killed. Jesus must be killed because Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus must be killed because Jesus has called into existence a new people who constitute a challenge to this societal order based on lies and deceit. Jesus must be killed because he is a threat to all who rule in the name of Pilate's idea of safety and comfort. Jesus must be killed because we do not want to have our deepest desires exposed. Jesus must be killed because we do not want our loves governed by his love. Jesus must be killed because we refuse to forgive our enemies. Jesus must be killed because we refuse to believe in a God who would create us new and who would come down among us in our likeness so that this is what we've learned from Matthew. The Son of Man must suffer that we might not only know but be participants in the life made possible by Jesus. This is what the Father has desired since Adam and Eve first betrayed their Creator. Crowds are fickle and untrustworthy because they depend on opinions. During his ministry, Jesus had compassion on the crowds, but he did not show trust to the crowds. And we know that the alternative to the crowd is not to know how to think for oneself, but rather to be a follower of Jesus. Indeed, there are few more conformist messages than the suggestion that we should escape the crowd by learning to be autonomous or self-sufficient or isolated. Jesus' call to discipleship is an alternative both to the crowd and our attempt to escape from the crowd on our own. Escaping the crowd on your own looks like, I can't trust the government, I can't trust my neighbor, I can't even trust my family. It looks like building a shack in rural Washington. Even when leaving the crowd to follow Jesus, it may look like I'm following Jesus more closely. I understand what he's saying better than you. I've spoken a lot thus far about systems built on lies and the mistrial of justice. But we live in the alternate system. This system is one which has picked up its cross, left the crowd, and has followed Jesus, the church. Our system is one of silent peace, like Christ, silent before the crowds, silent before the Sanhedrin, and now silent before Pilate. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, on the front lines of the culture war against Nazism, writes that when a system of order built on lies and injustice is confronted by a system of peace, a battle must ensue. And the way in which our system of peace fights is strange. It's unusual. Like King Jesus reigning on a throne of the cross, wearing a crown of thorns, a blood-scarlet robe, and holding a bruised reed in his right hand. It is through the forgiveness of sins 
The other system which condemns, which condemned Jesus, literally denies God, as the crowds and Pilate denied God Jesus. This peace is only made possible by the forgiveness which we receive first from Christ in his suffering on the cross. This is the peace that allows family to forgive killers, victims to forgive their offenders, wives to forgive their husbands. And quite honestly, today, it is the only alternative to chaos. May the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Thank you.